We meet in the person of Jesus, a man who set his face toward the holy city and humiliating death. Our gospel reading and all of our readings today show a kind of chain of events that provoke his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. It all begins with his giving of detailed instructions to the disciples to prepare for a kind of procession into the city, a very different procession than the one on the other side of the Mount of Olives of Pilate, mounted on a war horse in pomp and in majesty. No, our king comes in a different kind of pomp and majesty, and his entry both recalls and subverts the military entry of the triumphant Simon Maccabeus into Jerusalem. It recalls this years before in 141 BC, where in Maccabees we hear this scripture with praise and palm branches and with hymns and songs did Simon Maccabeus come and enter the city. This day, Palm Sunday, it's filled with conflicting signals and juxtapositions as if it intends to be a kind of satire on military liberators. So on entry into the city, Jesus doesn't storm the palace. He does not storm the Roman garrison. He doesn't go to Herod's place and tear it all down. And at the end of the procession, Mark tells us that Jesus goes into the temple and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany. We know that Jesus is carefully weighing and planning his next action. Between the two passages we heard today, the mood of our liturgy changes dramatically. I don't know if you've noticed this, but for me, it's impossible to understand all of this without some reference to the intervening events. Far from driving out Roman occupiers at the head of the assembled crowd, Jesus actually goes on to cleanse the temple, a story we heard just a few weeks ago. This was not an act of impulsive rage. It wasn't an act of hate or of violence. But once again, it was something Jesus planned. It was something he intended. The mind of Christ, as we heard in Philippians. With the anointing of Jesus by an unnamed woman at Bethany, her action and her heart's intention to anoint her king, it's contrasted with the reaction of Jesus' disciples. And just as Mark juxtaposes their abandonment of Jesus with the faithfulness of the women at the cross later in the story. You see, it was the women who knew of Jesus all along and anointed their king, stayed with him to the end, even when the crowd was fickle. 
this anonymous woman who anointed Jesus' body for burial, she loved him. She loved him and stayed with him. And then when back in Jerusalem, he prefigures and interprets his death at the Last Supper. Jesus hands himself over to the disciples in the form of what we call the Eucharist. Before he is handed over again by the figure of Judas to the religious leaders. And then handed over to the high priest for execution. All of these scenes contain all of the political and religious intrigue and the key actors in what we could call occupied Palestine. The Roman and Jewish authorities are there. So is the rebel leader. We heard that word rebel today. And the crowds sort of represent the popular masses. But Jesus is there alone or at least for a time he's alone, representing abandonment by his community. And if you have ever felt abandoned by anyone or by anything, you don't need me to tell you what that feels like. It could be that it felt a little bit like Jesus, being abandoned by those whom he counted on for support and for love. In the person of Pilate, the empire shows truth to be of less concern than maintenance of power and maintenance of privilege and ultimately maintenance of violence when power and privilege get hoarded. And in the torture meted out by their soldiers, the Romans revere their casual contempt for people under occupation. These religious elites and the fury of the crowd, the characters in this story are echoed in every era of human history, aren't they? We can go back to revolutionary France. We can go back to medieval Spain. We can go throughout times and places in which people of peace are framed wrongly and scapegoated. The cry of the crowd, crucify him, speaks of hopes raised and hopes disappointed. Mark tells us that Barabbas, whom they asked to be released in Jesus' stead, is in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. I think Jesus and Barabbas represent fundamentally different kinds of revolutionary praxis and revolutionary love. Insurrection, which has been a buzzword for us in this country, lo these many months, simply replaces one violent regime with another. But the kingdom proclaimed by Jesus, our King and our Lord, involves a deeper, gentler, and kinder and more fundamental transformation, one that eschews violence and domination. But sadly, it's one that the angry crowd rejects. It's not popular. The astonishing claim of the Passion story is that God is present here, even in a sacrificial victim. 
How could that be? How could God be present and watch and wait as God's people reject and crucify love? Jesus allowed himself to be handed over to death. It could be that that's part of the mind of Christ. And now he willingly assumes the cross. And when those scribes and priests mock Jesus, saying he saved others and he cannot save himself, unwittingly perhaps, it is they who take us closer to the heart of the mystery as Judas would do later at the Last Supper, taking us deeper into the heart of the mystery as Jesus leans over to bless him and to love him first. The incarnate God time and time again refuses to save himself so that he might save us and make whole the entire world. In Matthew's Gospel, around the Passion, we hear this line. The whole city was in turmoil asking this, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. Yes, he was a prophet, but there's more. So I want to add just a few things about who Jesus is before we finish and move on to Holy Week. He is the one, and we follow the one who said, God so loved the world. He is the one, and we follow the one who promises where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. He is the one, and we follow the one who says, come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. He is the one. We follow the one who says, I am the good shepherd. I call my sheep by name, and I lead them out. And he is the one. And we follow the one who says, I will never leave you. I will never, ever forsake you. Whatever your Holy Week is, wherever you are in your consciousness, in your mind, in your spiritual journey, whatever has happened to you, or wherever you are right now, it already resounds with the echoes of Easter and following the one who promises these things to us when we love each other, following this God. That's always the tension in Holy Week, through the ups and the downs, the cries and the shouts, the abandonment, the mystery, and finally the overwhelming bursting of joy. And it was a tension in Jesus' life. So keep awake and be ready this week. Follow the story from Monday Thursday through both of our offerings on Good Friday and through this darkened church at Easter Vigil, and join us outside. We're with Pastor Tim All and members of First Baptist. It will be glorious to be together and to celebrate hope 
and love, moving forward together. Amen.